0: This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show, Brian Keating, author of the excellent book "Losing the Nobel Prize," he's been on the podcast before, and we talked about all his amazing scientific achievements in his quest to actually see the beginning of the universe the big bang we describe that and talk about that in the podcast about his book losing the nobel prize but in this particular episode we were going to start talking about the 10 or a dozen possible ways the universe could have started and we were going to do a deep dive and explain for everybody take it from the complicated to the simple but we just started riffing on different ideas and and running different ideas by, and he has lots of projects that he's working on. So this is this basically is a fly on the wall um, uh, view into the kind of conversation about ideas that I have on a regular basis with my friends and with people I work with, and we go through a lot of different ideas and possibilities in a very short amount of time. So. Hang on and enjoy the ride. Thanks.
1: So you hear me, James? Yeah. Okay. So another one I do with my kids, sometime, or I did with my kids, my two older boys, seven and nine. I said, you know, let's say you guys are in the kitchen. There's this enormous cookie. It's so delicious. It's got the M&Ms. It's got the frosting and the sprinkles. You both go to it and you grab it. And then you come to me and and you say, dad, I found it first. It's all mine. And Elijah, the younger one, says, no, it's all mine. I found it first. Um, what should I do? And so, and they always say, well, you know, I found it. I really did find it or whatever. Although eventually they'll say, all right, just split it in half. Okay. And that, that seems fair. And then I say, oh, that's great. Um, now let's say you're walking down the street and you find a lost puppy. And Elijah says, he found it first. You say, you found it first, Isaac? Uh, what do we do? Are we sp- Oh wait a second! <laughs> you know what do we do now in that case? And that's the famous you know split the baby, yeah. Uh, you know King Solomon, but it's but it's related to it's a finding in the Talmud.
0: But but also it's it's related to the the Nash equilibria, right? In, yes. In game theory. So so the the answer and, and again the answer for me is is you know always err on the side of giving. Yes. So that other if if other if by my actions other people have more abundance then again, a rising tide lifts all boats. So, so yes. I would just automatically say he could have it. And so, uh, it's, but, a, but, it's the same question of if you and your wife are prisoners and you're given the choice who's going to die first, uh, you would always say me. I would die first. Right. Well, in the case of the puppy, you're actually supposed to sell it and split the money. So the
1: Talmud rules that you split it, but you don't split the the physical item. Obviously, you don't kill the baby, but you give it... Th- so splitting the baby, that one went to the, the real mother says to give it up because she loves it so much she doesn't want it to be killed when Solomon says to split it. Um, but you're right. right. So,
0: so, so my my solution applies when you can't split it, but mm-hmm. um, like in cases of a divorce, then it makes sense to um, sell it and split it. So like for instance... This is, by the way, an easy way to do a divorce that I tell yeah. people, which is, you know, obvi- like, so it separates the emotions from the assets. So obviously when you want a divorce, emotionally you want the divorce right. and the assets are the only thing that's complicated. It's not like you have to like m- negotiate about how much you're going to be feeling for each other after right. this. So so uh, a, a very simple way to do a complicated divorce is put all of your assets into a company that you jointly own um, with the agreement that you're going to work towards selling the company or all the assets in the company, and then you get emotionally divorced, right. so that that becomes a thousand dollar divorce instead of a multi million dollar several year divorce. And actually, in the Talmud, there's much more. It's even more
1: kind of um, uh, fiscally oriented or, or financially structured. Not not to be you know uh, pejorative, but uh, so actually, when you get married, you the marriage contract is a prenuptial agreement. And it's written in Aramaic and it says all the things the wife is entitled to during the marriage, including how many times she has to she is entitled to have sex with her husband. It actually says that in there in Aramaic. Uh, and because there was a sliding entitled scale. to or obligated to. That's no, you, an important. You have distinction. to have she's entitled to it. So if you don't fulfill her sexual uh, needs, you are in violation of the Talmud. Now you can't have sex for two weeks of every month because that is during her menstrual cycle. Uh, so that builds up a lot more. That's why Orthodox people have so many more
0: kids than non-reformed you know, Jews because but, but, they- but, but but that's interesting though that it, they used the word entitled rather than obligated. No, because yeah. Yeah, it's, it, it it's more centered around the mother because I guess because it's more centered around having children. Yes, and the mother wants the children, and more than ostensibly the in this model, the the man does not want as many children because then he has to make more money and exactly he, his life gets harder. And and depending on your
1: profession, so this will interest you as it did me. Uh, depending on your profession, uh, it it uh, the number of times you are obligated to have sex with your wife, conversely, is dependent on your job. So, oh, um, actually, if you thought, uh, which would have more obligation, a, um, a stonemason or, uh, or a rabbi, a Talmudic scholar? Who has to have sex more often? The stonemason, because the rabbi is supported by the community. Well, that, but also because he's using his mind so much. And the Talmud considers physical labor subservient to this mental labor. And actually studying the Torah, you know, deriving laws and implications—that's considered the most praiseworthy and strenuous of all activities. Obviously, they wrote it, right? So the rabbis, the priestly class, are the ones who wrote this document and had. Uh, but but it's but it's kind of goes against the normal priestly Genghis Khan, you know, notion where the powerful have the most number of kids. In this case, they're basically saying, oh, it's okay if we have fewer kids because we're going to focus our main effort. Psychologically, sexual energy is going to be transmutated into intellectual energy, whereas a stonemason, you know, he's just cracking stones all day.
0: Well, it's, what's so interesting is that the whole idea of of that and the entitled versus obligated mm-hmm. is almost like men in Judaism are have reversed— the whole traditional hierarchy of every other primate where the alpha male, you know, and and in Judaism, the leader is the (laughs) rabbi. Right. But still they can't get away from the fact that ultimately the physically strongest person is the real alpha male.
1: That's right. Yeah, physically, yeah, they do need it. So there's two, a Nobel Prize winner wrote a couple of different things. Uh, One is called Risk Aversion in the Talmud. Another one's called Game Theory in the Talmud. This guy's Robert J. Alman, A U M A N N. I'll send you the articles. So yep. it goes through a couple of things. Like, if you have a frequent thing that happens in law is proportional division. You have five kids, and how do you um, how do you divide up each dollar of debt that you may owe after you're gone? So how, what's the obligation that the that people have on your estate when there's multiple people? And it goes through a, a, a the the game theory matrix of the claimants versus the estate amount. It's just a cute little pay. He didn't win the Nobel Prize for that, but he's, he's an economist. So he went through, um, and he actually uses this really interesting – are you going to have screen sharing on your uh, on your new Zoom thing that you're doing? Yeah, with? eventually. Okay, awesome, yeah. Uh, it's not – I wouldn't ro- wait to roll that out, but it's kind of cool. So he actually goes through and shows using the laws of fluid dynamics that there's actually a way to make a, a, make an, a physical analog using pumps and and pistons to how you divide up unequal claims. And the claims are are kind of the throttle size of a throat between two pistons or two cylinders. And then if you have equal amounts, then they're equal pistons. So he has this fluid flow and now he's a very creative guy. I
0: think he's still alive. Um, you know what what what's interesting about that is I like when multiple, I think this is I think this is the the key to life, really, is when multiple domains uh combine to create something better. So in his model if you can use that to forward predict something that wasn't previously predictable or 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 forward take an action that wasn't previously thought wise then I think that's very interesting.
1: Yeah, it's like law plus physics, you know, kind like, of together. like like
0: I was reading one of these um about one of the things I think I forget if it was the quantum loop gravity one and there was some reference to category theory uh, uh, which is kind of like group theory, but even a little bit more abstract. Mm-hmm. And I actually, the one academic paper I've ever written was about category theory. Oh, really? And, oh, wow. And, and and I was going to write a second one about how you can model AI with category theory. And uh, I showed my ideas to this one um, category theoretician and this one AI professor, <laughs> and they ended up taking the idea and writing a paper about it without me. Oh, great. Which is fine. Yeah. Like, I, I I always learn it's a but, risk, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh and I was fine with that. But I uh it was just you know, that was an example. No one had thought to use this obscure branch of mathematics to just oh, find AI.
1: Maybe we'll do a podcast on my show about that because uh, yeah, I'm getting into a lot more AI and physics and and uh you know, can you have an AI Galileo? You know, is there a way or is it fundamentally different domain um, you know, in, in physics versus the creative process? Like you can have AI art but that's really just machine learning and what ab testing on a, you know in on a huge number of samples but um, but physics is different because there's an objective truth unlike art where it's all subjective and you could you can get statistically you know it's no way to say oh statistically what do most people think about quantum gravity like it's irrelevant
0: so you absolutely can't have ai uh, uh, ai galileo mm-hmm. yeah and the, and the reason is is because every mathematical theory can be encoded into the lambda calculus which is, in a sense, a programming language, right? Mm-hmm. That's the uh, uh, every every lambda calculus expression is a programming language. And if you can do um, AI to solve uh, lambda calculus equations, which you more or less can, then then essentially everything that's provable can be done via AI. Oh wow! Okay, cool. So yeah, let's let's make that a topic for. And a- you could generate theories using the t- just regular uh, deep learning that's happening now. Oh, yeah,
1: yeah, that's true. Yeah, exactly. There is a guy at MIT named Max Tegmark who has this campaign for artificial. But really what he's doing is he's encoding existing laws, like known laws of physics, into uh, machine learning and just saying, like, would you get a parabola out? Like, can you get Newton's laws out of data? But this is something different. This is like, you know, would you predict the positron, you know, from first principles if you had no other because it's so different it almost doesn't fit into the existing framework of mathematics or physics like Dirac had to add this extra concept called a spinner that you know no matter how much random you know monkeys throwing uh, darts at a dartboard you'd never come up with that because it's actually like you know what if, what if it's like the 52nd dimension has these certain properties but every other dimension out of the infinity of possible dimensions doesn't have it but you know he just tried it uh, you know and he had some intuition guided by yeah, group theory essentially, and now all of modern particle physics is based on that. So,
0: so I'd have to. That sounds interesting. I'd have to see a little more how yeah. I was using the group theory. But like something like the positron, let's say there was no mathematical basis for it, so you, it was hard, so it would be hard to derive from first principles. But you could still look at the history of creativity and say, okay, for every idea, let's try to invert it and prove it. Yeah. And so the electron inverted would be the positron, right? So yeah,
1: that's um, that's charge uh, charge reversal symmetry. That's right.
0: Yeah. So if I say like, oh, um, uh, I wanna, I, I wanna use AI to make. Let let's say there's a country with no, they just got the internet introduced, and now I wanna use AI to become a billionaire. I can say, well, okay, uh, in America, Google. A search engine got big, so let's make a search engine in this weird country with this weird language. Right, and so that's how. With from first without first principles, you could use corresponding theor- You know, creativity to right. You could have a theory of of creativity. So it's interesting. I read this. I'm reading this
1: dialogue on two world systems by Galileo, and I came across this passage yesterday. I want you to tell me if this reminds you of anything, as it did with me. <clears throat> so he's talking about people that are really smart versus people that are stupid. He says, the vain presumption of understanding everything can have no other basis than never understanding anything. For anyone who has experienced just once the perfect understanding of one single thing and had truly tasted how knowledge is accomplished would recognize that of the infinity of other truths, he understands nothing.
0: That is a, that is a great... Paragraph from Galileo. Yeah, that's gal- This book,
1: James, is so deep, and so this is. Uh, so I think it's like the Dunning Kruger effect, or Kruger whatever it's called, Dunning Kruger effect. Yeah, because he's saying like the little you know makes you think you know a lot that you understand something or even everything. Uh, that if you uh, if you apply that, you realize that you actually understand nothing, but you have this taste of confidence that you understand everything because you
0: understood something. Yeah, like like you know, and I've I've t- talked about this on a podcast before, which is that. Everybody assumes the dunning- Kruger effect is is this laughable negative thing, like, yeah. oh, that's the doctor Altucher Altacher's got the dunning- Kruger effect. All right. <laughs> but the reality is, I would never have done anything in my life without a powerful dunning Kruger effect. bias. Like, yeah. You know, you can't become, for instance, a novelist without the Dunning Kruger effect, <laughs> because your first novel's always going to be shit. Right. But you're going to think it's great, so that's going to keep you going. No one understands me, that's and right. just and comedy. You will never go up comedy, stand up comedy more than three or four times without yep. the Dunning Kruger effect. Yeah. Like, oh, I'm funny. It's just that's really work underrated. Out that time. It's really yeah. underrated, right? You know, it almost makes me think it's an article idea too, mm-hmm. but I have a chapter in my next book called, um, the, the, the science of idea calculus or the, or the math of idea calculus. Mm. And I basically look at, I, I basically map creativity onto, you know, everything from, you know, calculus to addition, division, multiplication, subtraction, and talk about how you could generate ideas, you know, applying math to creativity Mm. so you know Mm -hmm. adding two ideas together or subtracting an idea from another idea Uh, you know like for instance what's comedy comedy is is drama where you subtract skills so for instance if if i'm bruce willis and a bunch of terrorists are coming into the room i have this skill where i'm going to pull out like 17 guns and Mm -hmm. shoot everybody and do karate and so on But if I'm Woody Allen, so I'm removing the skill of being able to use weapons and having any physical dexterity at all. If a bunch of terrorists come in on Woody Allen, comedy will result if he tries to do the same thing as Bruce Willis. So that's idea subtraction. Uh
1: Uh-huh. Yeah, like uh, Home Alone, right? So yeah, if if like Kevin's this, you know, sniper and in, in the in the movie and just like assassinates the guys right as they come in the first, like the movie's over. There's no comedy, uh, right? Right, exactly. But because he doesn't have that, he has to improvise comedic skills that are tangential to the actual skills that a uh, Bruce Willis character would need. Yeah, that's really funny. Uh, that's a good one. Uh, but yeah. the reason I bring up the Galileo thing is, so this is a book idea. Um, so Galileo obviously wrote the book. Uh, there's a Kindle version, but there's no Audible version. And this book is so readable. It's at the forwards by Einstein. He called it the most important book in history, basically. The um, the other um, person is this guy, Stephen Jay Gould at Harvard. Uh, so it's like the best science writers in, in history, and uh you know have have basically blessed this book and it doesn't have an audiobook and so so interesting i'm wondering like how do we go about like making it into because it's so readable he has i mean there's just a couple of you know it's it's structured in this platonic thing but it's up to date you know he did idea sex with uh copernicus and plato you know separated by two thousand years and just really trying to and he was full of biases and you know, it's almost like worthy of a psychological study of, you know, the Dunning-Krieger effect, the confirmation bias effect, because originally he wanted to call it a study on the flux and reflux of the Earth's tides which is the one element of this book that's completely wrong. The rest of it's correct. Obviously, the sun is not going around the earth, but the tides don't prove that. He said that the earth going around the sun, as it rotates on its axis and as it moves in its orbit, causes a sloshing effect like the water in this water bottle. That was his analog. But it hasn't the real tides on the ocean have nothing to do with that. It's all due to the moon's influence on the earth. So he he spends a lot of times proving that the moon is just like the earth. And, and of course it's full of intrigue because it's related to, you know, how he got imprisoned and he insulted his,
0: the Pope who was once his best friend. So, so, so it's, it's just thinking how to do this. Like, yeah, it's all public domain. So you don't need any permissions. What about the translation though? I mean, I'm
1: reading a translation by this guy who's also dead. This guy, Stillman Drake. In my book, I printed pictures from it and I just said, you know, oh, it's public domain, which it is, but you can't just like go to Getty Images and, and take a picture of it. So, how do I, how do you get around that? The fact that it's, so, yeah, uh,
0: the, the, the translation is not public domain, right? So, yeah. So, like, for instance, Wayne Dyer once did a book about the Dao Te Ching. Yeah. And it, and he did a, it's one of his best selling books. It mm-hmm. turns out it was based on a translation by Stephen Mitchell. Mm-hmm. So, Stephen Mitchell sued him. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, uh, and Steve Mitchell's married to another big self-help writer, so it's funny. Just all these <laughs> self-help writers about you know personal empowerment are all, right. <laughs> all suing each other. <laughs> like um, but conniving. What what you can do is though I wonder if there's any public domain translations or if you use Google Translate and fix it up yourself, you know, so you translate it effectively using Google, the help of Google Translate, uh, and you could kind of match. You know, just to make sure you're on track, you can match what you're doing with other translations. Make sure you're 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 translating correctly. Mm-hmm. You could just make the translation, and then what I would do is I would hire a professional reader to yeah. read the Galileo parts, but then every other chapter would be you commenting, mm-hmm. you know, with all of these observations, like Dunning Kruger, or this is what he's saying to avoid the church, or this is you know idea whatever. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, I would totally do that because. Audiobooks, by the way, sell more than every other kind of book right yeah, now. Yeah, I
1: know. Yeah, they're like super podcast. I mean, this is 500 pages long. The other idea I had is like get yeah, someone who's Italian. He sat there in the studio and read it, and he has a good English, you know, American accent, so that's fine. I mean, he's Italian, but, you know, that at least makes it a little more plausible, even though he's just reading from this guy's – I mean, the guy who wrote it, who did the translation,
0: is dead, but, um, you know. But his w- estate uh, will own the – I mean, I don't know all, all the exact cutoffs when he doesn't it, like it's yeah. sixty years or something like that.
1: Yeah, it's so, not that long. It's yeah, homosexual.
0: so so but I would just translate it somehow or or, or use Fiverr like f i v e r r. Yeah, I know them.
1: Yeah. Oh wait, wait, James. Actually, there's an original. So he translated it from a 1911 translation, which was translated from a 1750 translation. I mean, there are a lot of English
0: translations that are hundreds of years old. So I okay yeah so I would take one of those public domain translations and mm-hmm. just modernize the language and then you're done. Yeah. Okay, great. Cuz yeah, those are public domain.
1: Yeah. I mean the thing is I don't want to do it. I don't have 20 hours to sit in a booth, you know, and read the thing, but um
0: but yeah, but that's where I, this is what's great about this as a, it's not your book, it's Galileo, so mm-hmm. just get a professional reader for that part, but I would do oh the intermediate
1: know, chapters, yeah. Yeah.
0: And yeah. then you could just riff even. You don't even have to have like a scripted or written version. Right.
1: Yeah, that's, that's actually very interesting. Yeah, and it also adds value to the existing written book, which is always a bestseller, right? So like um, Peter Diamandis, always audiobook narrates his books um, with his co-author Cutler. <clears throat> and then they have these intermediate riffing chapters between each actual printed chapter. So you get actual extra value from the audiobook as compared to the written book.
0: Yeah, and um, uh, I, I, when I did the audiobook for Choose Yourself, mm-hmm. I did it totally rift like i stuck to the basic outline uh-huh. and then i would just riff new stories and extra stories and stuff like that people because so then it's like a completely separate product yeah. so people would have to buy both right um and uh but with this Galileo one there's so much fuel oh, yeah. in in what i call this spoken wheel model of you know one idea is the wheel but then you generate lots of spokes it you could get that it that's fuel for ted talks for uh, corporate Calendar like
1: uh, daily a, a
0: calendar mm-hmm. corporate consulting or corporate business talks like the Galileo mm-hmm. method of creativity yeah. and you're gonna train you know everybody to think like a, a Galileo yeah and you go into corporations for hundred fifty thousand dollars for a weekend boot camp yeah uh, and uh, you could do a podcast series one chapter per uh, uh, one episode per chapter yeah uh, so there's lots of lots yeah. of different things that could spin out of that uh I think so, yeah. So, there's
1: so the other, well, we didn't finish off the Talmud idea. So, um I'm just debating right now. So, one thing I'd like to do personally is so, I don't know, Jay, are you recording? I forgot. He is, but this is not. I'll just say yeah, I don't know. We're not going to use this right now. No, it's fine. No, we should use this because we had a lot of good ideas. It'll be fun to get paid to actually do this instead of, you know, like spending $10,000 thanks to Jay's advice about microphones, mixers, sound machines, cloud lifters. Okay. Anyway. Uh, I'd like to be at least not so negative, but I would like to have the satisfaction of putting stuff out. You know, it's like my book sold 10,000 copies, maybe, you know, which is not bad for especially. No, for, it's great.
0: Yeah. Um, and audiobook more, you know, probably 20,000 total units. A, a book about losing the Nobel Prize is not going to be Harry Potter. Yeah. So you have different metrics for success, but still, you know, copies and money are, are, are ways to measure it if you did a good job. Mm-hmm. If you did the job you yeah, wanted to do. Which is what exactly. So, I mean,
1: I've measured that also by like how many emails do I get from someone in Pakistan, you know, writing an Orthodox, you know, practicing Jew, you know, about how much it changed, you know, her life. You know, she's like, it's, you know, she's a devout Muslim and, and she wants to be on my podcast. She wants to be on her podcast. You know, it's just, it's funny how those little Ugandans write me all the time. Uh, but anyway, the, uh, the, so the question I have is, is like, yes, we could do this 30-day book on the Talmud, but I almost feel like, yeah, there's still the prestige of publishing with a publisher, uh, but I'd need it to be easy because I just, I don't have the time. I'm doing the Simons Observatory. I'm trying to, you know, we, I think the book that you and I are talking about, definitely 30-day book uh, or, you know, whatever, Amazon yeah. self published we got to do it that way. And and that'll be a dream, you know, to do that with you. But the, um, the Talmud book, I think is, it, it could fulfill one of my other desires in life, which is to be like, a unique kind of lecturer that can talk not just about like business. I think there's too many, but like ethics and morality and just like, how do you treat people? Like one thing that in the Talmud it's, and actually comes from the Torah itself. If you say that I killed somebody, but you lied, then you get put to death. In other words, you get the punishment. So it's a game theory. There's so much game theory in the Torah and there's so much science in the Torah.
0: As well as, you know, a basis for, for law. Like, like a lot of times, with a lot of these religions, people think of them as they're supposed to be spiritual and religious, and no. there's this separation of church and state. You're right. But actually, things like the Tao Te Ching might not have been re- spiritual or religious at all. It might have just been a political guidebook. Yeah. Just like the Talmud might have yeah. just been, um, you know, or at least partly a, a political guidelines of how to mm-hmm. how to be a leader. Yeah, how to be so, a citizen. So
1: one of my goals with this book would be in the Talmud book, you know, how it's relevant to your life today is to like, you know, I'd like to be able to go to Israel and give speeches in yeshivas and also talk in America, you know, at, at yeshivas without becoming a rabbi. Uh, you know, I don't want to do that. I'm not not that nutty about it. But like, which do you think would have a higher impact? Publishing, you know, traditional publisher or, you know, 30-day book, we get it out, we could do it. Um, I'm also thinking of like, you write the foreword to it. Ben Shapiro write the forward, you know, we have like 10 forwards. Dennis Prager, write the afterward. But um, but do you think that works better in a in a traditionally published book? I have nothing against the traditionally published book. Um, and seeing as you and I are gonna do a, a self-published one, do you think I need it?
0: Here, here's here's the way I would do it. Mm-hmm. I would um I don't think I don't think it matters. I think the only thing that matters is quality. Mm-hmm. So do what I call a professionally self published book. So mm-hmm. as opposed to, you know, just talking it out and then the transcript and well, like we'll make this uh beginning of the universe book as high quality as possible Yeah. but like with with this one it could be really well thought out it could be I mean th- I'm not saying one's not thought out and the other is but it doesn't have to be in 30 days like just mm-hmm. plan it out the way you would want to do it don't you know it's a quality idea mm-hmm. um you 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 know the the benefit of a traditional publisher, let's say there's two benefits now. And they're not monetary and they're not marketing. And 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 I'm I'm gonna say they're not stigma related, because that doesn't really matter anymore. Yeah. But um the the benefits are you get in bookstores, but that's not as relevant right now. Yeah. And the other benefit is that you get in advance. So so the third component, which is stigma, I'm not so sure stigma exists. Like I think an older generation of writers will say that stigma exists, but nobody cares at all right now. Yeah. Like how many people have asked you, hey, who is your publisher, by the way?
1: Right. Yeah. No, they they don't. I mean, if people put it in like it never got reviewed in the New York Times anyway. So and I assume, which most
0: books don't. Yeah. Most books published by traditional or self-published sell a hundred copies. Yeah. So and and in gen on average, the average self-published book sells more copies. Than the average mainstream traditional published book. Now that was data from a few years ago, but I'm I don't know no, if it's, sure still it's still true, true. But it it it, it is. Ex- and by the way, the average self published book, also according to the same data from a few years ago, has a higher star ranking on Amazon than
1: right. Yeah, yeah, I remember you saying that. So yeah, I mean, there's almost no advantage, and it takes a lot a lot shorter amount of time. You can get it out there much quicker with this approach. Yeah, and
0: you could use a service like Scribe Media, like Tucker Max's Scribe yeah. Media, to get like a professional cover designer, some marketing help, a professional. You know, you need a imp- professional interior designer. You need a, you need two editors: one who's really good at editing structure, and the other who's good at um, you know grammar and and line by line editing. Mm-hmm. So I all have those things- I have a
1: couple editors already from Norton that are just freelance. Yeah, you because know, they all get furloughed. So now I know like five great copy editors. (laughs) and Yeah. uh, And
0: then you do, you do an audio book, you do an ebook, you do a hardcover, you do a paperback, like all of these things. mm -hmm. And then, and then you make up like, uh, you know, uh, Big Bang Publishing. Yeah. 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 And, and, and that's good. That's, that's fine. And no, no one ever asked like, you know, there's a lot of books actually, I think it's the noble, Peace Prize Committee or something is doing a book through Scribe Media right now as opposed to a traditional publisher.
1: Can you put me in touch with with him and maybe uh, Tim Ferriss if that's uh, if you think that's a good idea? Uh, yeah. I was going to ask Noah, but I just feel like, you know, I'd rather just kind of be his friend and, and not like ask him for stuff. Because I know Eric Weinstein, he always gets asked, and I asked him too, to put me in touch with Peter Thiel and with uh, Joe Rogan. And he's just like, well, he said he would put me in touch with Rogan when the time is right, but you know, I feel like, you know, the time has never been more right. So I, I actually had the booking agent. I was friendly with the booking agent for Rogan a couple of months, about a year ago. And I never really pursued it. Cause I was just like, uh, I don't know if I want to get so big, but now I'm thinking to skip the, like, I just hit 10,000 subscribers and I'm like, Isn't, that would be like the ultimate skip the line, right? Just go on Rogan, go on Ferris. And every subscriber I get is like fighting a miniature skirmish, you know, for attention yeah. and, I, I mean, it. you look at like um, like Ryan Holiday, yeah. who's an excellent... He's gonna come on my show in a couple after his book comes out. Oh,
0: good! I yeah. got Seth uh, Godin,
1: I got him, I got the, now I have Nobel Prize winners asking me to come on my show, which is cool.
0: Yeah, that's great. Yeah, and, and uh, Ryan, he doesn't have a podcast, yeah. and he always just markets his book by going on the best podcast out there. That's yeah. the best way to market a book right now.
1: Yeah. So, um, but then there's the one other book I have, which is based on. So this is the way that like Tim Ferriss might be able to help me. So on my podcast, I always ask people, um, you know, basically stuff specific about them, their book, their career. But I also ask like three questions at the end, the most important of which is like, what would you put in your ethical will, not your monetary will, not what you're going to leave to your kids, but what do you want to leave to humanity as a guideline, you know, as, as you know, kind of like what Tim did with the billboard. But I think it's a little bit more nuanced the way I do it with like a monolith floating on a space a asteroid or something, you know, a little bit more tangible and, um, and so the the thing I'm wondering about from Tim is so I'd like to take all those conversations Jim Simons you uh, you know these uh, w- the women who lost the Nobel Prize for discovering pulsars you know get all these great women Carl Sagan's widow um, and and men and put them and have a book and just have what what is their ethical will? Like, what do they want to leave? Oh, yeah. And like have the first chapter be like an introduction, like a little bit of a Jewish kind of spin to it. Like what the ethical will is comes from, you know, Jacob and the Talmud and the Torah rather, and Moses and the Deuteronomy, et cetera. And just kind of like frame it, but why it's so important. And here's here's a list of people I didn't interview, Barack Obama, you know, Oprah Win, you know, just kind of name recognition, whatever. So that's, it's kind of like this book by um, David Brooks called The Road to Character, and he talks about, like, there's two different um, versions of the creation story in, in the in, in the Bible. And this famous rabbi named Soloveitchik uh, said that it represents two different um, aspects of a human being. Like, Adam, the first uh, human ever created, he works the soil, but he also communicates directly with God. So uh, this rabbi called it, like, resume virtues, like, what I've done, you know, to work the soil and name the animals and, and like, all the productive daily work, you know, what college I went to. Um, oh, and then there's the the uh, ethical, vert, the, uh, the eulogy virtues, which are much more important. Like, he was a good man. He was a kind soul. He was a good... That's the thing that matters most, right? So if your kid isn't good at sports or she's not pretty, you say, oh, at least she has good character. But that's, like, the most important thing. Like, I'd rather have my kid right. be great character than be the captain of the football team. So people don't think about this on a daily basis. And I actually think, this might appeal to Tim, that by thinking about, like, if you wrote your will today... I, pr- I claim it would make you less likely to commit suicide. If you have some suicidal ideation, if you just wrote your will and include your ethical will, what you lived for, what you stood for, what were the most pivotal moments in your life, what you overcame, I think you know it's almost like self-evident that it would make investing your life with more meaning. So there's a stealth component to writing your will. So the end of it would be how to write your ethical will um, and lessons learned from Jim Simons, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, kind of an intro, a conclusion, appendix, how to write your ethical will, a website
0: to help you do it. And yeah, you could even uh, store it, quote unquote. Yeah, yeah. I put know, it in
1: a time capsule like on the internet, so, right.
0: So I find – what's very interesting, what you're doing is – this is Victor Frankl's man's search yeah. for meaning, mm-hmm. but a that. much more practical –
1: I only like the second half of that book. I only like the like gestalt therapy. I, I don't even care about the constant. I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. You've seen my, <laughs> yes, I, I said, I don't
0: like this. I know, half. I know. Teasing so, <laughs> because, because, by the way, yeah. he doesn't really give a practical way no, of getting there. You're absolutely and, right. And so, so what I like about your idea is you're kind of giving a, a practical way to mm-hmm. get there. And you're giving also a more practical reason for getting there. Mm-hmm. I mean, his reason also was extremely practical, yeah, of course. but um, you're, you're connecting the dots much more directly. Uh, which, which is interesting. And then you could also have some scientific research about what mm-hmm. it means to, to um, uh, what effect does it have on you to just write a will? Mm-hmm. You know, J-Stor, does it actually- j right, J-Store. Yeah. And, and um, you know, and then, and then Brad Meltzer has done some stuff. He did a TED Talk on uh, what's it like to write your own obituary. Mm-hmm,
1: and it'd right. be interesting
0: to talk to someone like that as well.
1: Oh, yeah, that's a good
0: point. And Brad, Brad Meltzer's a big thriller writer.
1: Oh, yes, yeah. I've heard that, right. Yeah, okay, great. So uh, that book, do you think, would be better self-published again? Or, I mean, I mean, it would be nice to have, you know, the way to sell your nth book is to write your n plus two books, right? So, I mean, is there a way to, you know, just publishing self-published versus that for a book like this about character, you know, virtue, a little bit higher, higher level?
0: Well, there's a couple of answers. One is when you self-publish, it doesn't mean you're not going to regularly publish. So uh, a lot of self-published books, Including Fifty Shades of Grey, mm-hmm. The Martian, um, uh, many, many nonfiction, yeah, yeah. but the, the the Power of Now yeah. were all self published. And then later on, major publishers published them mm. when they were successfully self published. So one doesn't necessarily, uh, for the other. The other thing is, though, I just, I see what you're saying. So despite my argument that there's no stigma, there is a little bit of feeling for an that, academic, especially.
1: I mean, it's, yeah. yeah.
0: So, so, What I do is, because I agree, is that I'll self-publish a bunch of books and then I'll traditionally publish. Mm -hmm. So right now my next book is going to be traditionally published. I haven't done that since 2015 maybe. And, um, you know, just every few years because I want to just – I want to send the message that, hey, I'm still Mm – I'm still not, I'm not as far afield as people think. i'm um, I have my mainstream points as well, right uh, i'll I'll traditionally publish. so it's it's more of a signaling thing mm-hmm. and There's but but wrong, yeah in terms of getting excited about an idea and doing it, that i I definitely say self publish mm-hmm. okay, and then just great. just and then it's more of a pacing thing as opposed to the quality of the idea. like all of these ideas could be mainstream published, yeah, uh but it's more like i i I think to myself you know, I, I, okay, I don't want to wait a year and a half for this to come out. Yeah. Uh, I, and I don't want to be bogged down with writing a proposal and pitching it around to 20 publishers and, you know, having a bidding war and then going through their whole process. Sometimes I do want to do that. Sometimes I don't. But everything you can do, uh, you could do through some uh, a hybrid like Scribe Media.
1: Right. Yeah. So, yeah, that would be good to, And And you mentioned Suzanne Gluck, your current, I guess she was your current agent, right? Yeah. Um, so she. It sounds like she did it. She basically made made it, uh, uh, you know, as effortless as possible, and for for your traditionally published
0: book, almost like it was a self published book. Yeah. She. She. I mean, the way the way I don't feel like it's self published is that the time frame. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And this particular editor that I'm working with is really great. I've worked with her on another book in the past, in in 2011, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and. You know, I was really happy to work with her again, but she's an an, an editor at uh, Harper Collins. Yeah. So it, it all worked out, but the difficult part for me, which is like all the getting together of proposals, mm-hmm. setting up the meetings, Suzanne was amazing and and took care of all of that. Um, but like, certainly my next book. Well, actually, so my my I pitched a new book already. And I do have to write it up a little bit more probably this weekend. Uh And then Suzanne and hopefully Harper will, Suzanne, I know likes it. I know my editor likes it. I don't know yet Mm -hmm. about um, publishers and, but I'm also fine self-publishing it. So I can go, it doesn't matter to me. I can go either way. So like my next few books, it doesn't really matter to me because yeah. I'm doing this one. Mm-hmm. So I mean the main it, thing is
1: just as you're writing and, and you're not stopping and you're doing a book, and then yeah, what channel the book ends up in is almost ir- irrelevant, right? It's like I mean, be less most, quality, right?
0: I, I think it was it's it's the great Ryan Holiday who told me you have three choices with a book, but you can't get all of them. Maybe it's one of these things you get two out of three. Mm-hmm. So you could sell a lot of copies, you could make a lot of money or you can get on a bestseller list. Right. So, But it's unlikely to get all three. Mm-hmm. So, uh, uh, I mean, like, ha- unless it's like Harry Potter or Freakonomics yeah. or whatever. But like, Choose Yourself, uh, I kind of almost did all three, yeah. and that was self-published. Yeah. So I didn't make the New York Times bestseller list because they had a rule against self-published. Yeah. I don't know if they still have that rule. But do, yeah. I, yeah, but I made the Wall Street Journal and the USA Today list. Yeah. And sold a lot of copies and made money. And helped a lot of people. Yeah, so like maybe I could have sold more traditionally published or maybe I would have sold less. I I don't know. Did people come to you afterwards
1: to publish it traditionally? Yes. They did, okay.
0: Yeah, but they wanted me to unpublish it which I did not want to do.
1: Uh-huh, right. Cause you'd made so,
0: it. so I made a lot more. Well, like what ultimately happened is that choose yourself. The book gave me a lot more opportunities outside of publishing mm-hmm. that have made me a lot more money. Right. So I didn't want to unpublish it. And you could do a 10 year
1: anniversary edition soon, you know? And yeah, uh, right, I,
0: th- I thought about that actually for this next book coming up, but yeah. I had so many new ideas anyway that yeah. I just made it a whole new book.
1: Yeah. You could just do a new forward for choose yourself and do a traditional or whatever. <laughs>
0: So you're thinking of with the Talmud one to work on it with the Harvard guy and potentially self-publish. And you just need like maybe like some special number, like maybe 18 things. So it's 18 has that Jewish feel. Yeah. And, uh, and then you have your commentary in there, or maybe it's just, you know, he writes his thing and then you have a discussion as like an addendum for each chapter. Well, it'll chapter. start off like,
1: because I want it to be funny. I want it to be funny. So it'll start off like this, you know, for example, with the person who tried to get you arrested for ma- for murder, um, it, it, that the quote would start, the chapter would start like this, um, you know, whatever, dying for, dying to convict or something would be the title. If an evil witness arises against a man to testify against him, and the judges investigate the matter and find that, lo, oh, his testimony is a lie. Then shall ye do unto him as he plotted to do unto his brother and eradicate evil from your midst, Deuteronomy 19. So it'll start off like this really abstract, you're like, what the f- what does this have to do, like eradicate evil to his brother? What, what are you even talking about? Um, so it says, and then the law is actually from the, you know, if it, in Jewish law, perjurers treated exactly like the person against whom he testified would have been treated had the perjury not been discovered. And then you go through it, like here's a case, you know, uh, whatever, O.J. Simpson, or it, it could have some like modern relevancy. You know, I don't want to make it political at all, but I'm going to – so it'll have some – it'll start off with this, like, abstract, kind of thought-provoking, like, if ye see – if ye neighbor's ox or ass – because you have to use ass as much as possible. If ye neighbor's yes. ass escaped yesterday and the day before, uh, and it shall gore a man, you know, uh um, or it shall gore a woman, and she shall miscarry, you know, then the – then the owner shall pay damages, but the ox will not be put to death. you're like, what the fuck? You know, like, what is that? But then you translate it like, you know, replace the word ox with, uh, you know, Volkswagen rabbit and replace, you know, or whatever, replace it with with, uh, Volkswagen and replace, you know, uh, whatever with goring with like, you know, uh, hit and run or or whatever. And like, so you translate it into modern uh, from the ancient and then come back and, the main thing is to make people think ethically the talmud's actually like a checklist like the checklist right. manifesto it's how you like you said it's all these areas of daily life so there's going to be like five sections and each or six sections each with three chapters so it'll be like um it'll have no reference to god like you shall it will not mention god at all it'll be totally for christians for jews so it'll start off with a line from the talmud something contemporary vignette an explanation of how it's com- uh, commented today and, uh, and it will have the following chapters, like a uh, personal financial, like interest loans, shopping, that shopkeeper law, the Starbucks challenge. Like I might have Noah write a guest section, you know, on the Starbucks challenge, you know, like a response. Cause that's actually how the Talmud is, is written. It's like chess partners. Like you get better if you have a plus and minus and an, e- and an, and an equal.
0: Right. So, so I, 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 you, you made me think of a, a bunch of structural ideas for this. Awesome. So. You're gonna write the forward, though,
1: right? Yeah, yeah. I'll write okay. the forward. I don't want you to have to like write the whole book, but I'm gonna. write are you? Want. The forward, yeah. uh,
0: but but what I like here is whenever you've presented one of these things to me, uh-huh. you always do it in the form of a question that you want an answer for. Yes. So or or that you uh, you want me to answer, and I would I would structure each. The first thing I would have is is a real world question that is mm-hmm. going to be solved, and then you go from the real world question presented in, of course, modern language, Mm -hmm. to the exact section of, like, Deuteronomy that's going to be interpreted. And then you maybe have the Talmud, just straightforward, the Talmud interpretation. And then you have the guy kind of really give the well-thought-out answer to the question using the Talmud interpretation and and the Torah. uh, Mm interpretation. Yeah. And and then if you're even, if you're throwing an addendum on top of that, uh, then you have that. And then... You might even, um, then you can make a website or have a newsletter, mm-hmm. a question per day or a question oh, per week. Okay. You know, sign yeah. up for this and you're going to get a question per week that, you know, somebody different each week will answer. Interesting. And and also you can have people submit questions and answers. So then you get the rabbinical community or the, or the you know, maybe even other religions. Yeah,
1: they have that. They have that, but nobody knows about it who's not Orthodox, which who don't need it. You know, it's like Greg Zuckerman well, will, you know, he, he'll talk to his rabbis. Rabbi has a newsletter, which he doesn't monetize. But, but, you know,
0: I've seen the, those yeah. uh, and, and I almost think they, they border on, and, and I'm not yeah saying anything insulting to anyone in particular, but they almost border on what, what I see when I see a, a pseudo intellectual, like mm-hmm. they use big vocabulary when they could use little vocabulary. <laughs> so like whenever I see one of those things, they're always using so many, I can't understand them because they're using like so many, like, you know, Hebrew and Yiddish terms right. and terms from the Bible uh, that I can't understand it. so So it's like, I lose interest, even though the questions might be interesting yeah, yeah. you can't get entry into it, right? Yeah. so I see this structurally as very interesting. And also as spokes and wheel, there's website, newsletter. Yeah. um, and then, by the way, I know like the public speaking thing is not as not as much interest. But you take anyone who's writes any book peripherally related to Judaism, and there is nonstop public speaking. Oh yeah,
1: it's, you never meet a you never meet a Jew or someone never meets a Jew and says, "Oh, that's that's great." You know, it's like, yeah. it's, like it's always like, like something interesting about a but Jew. Like,
0: but like AJ Jacobs wrote the yeah. um, Year of Living Biblically, yeah. yeah, and it's just kind of a humorous book, but it's his study of the Bible yeah. in a very funny but Jewish fashion. Yeah, and he it's he is still giving talks off of that. Yeah. and same with um, Stephen Dubner, who obviously gives more talks on Freakonomics, but his very first book was called Turbulent Souls about essentially re- realizing he was Jewish as an adult. His parents had converted to Catholicism oh, that's right. when he was a little kid. And so he, he, he still gets speaking gigs off of that.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's not that I actually love speaking and I love speaking and getting paid for it. It's just not, you know, it's like, you always say, like, you have to balance this against saying to your four year old, you know, daddy has to go away. Like, how much is that worth, you know, for a weekend to go to Pacoima, you know, versus like standing there and, and, uh, but, you know, I, I do want to do it. And who knows when that'll happen again. I mean, if we could do it by Zoom and that would be great. But, um, but the main thing is to, yeah, is to get that. There's a certain level of – like I would like to be the scholar in residence at synagogues and go and speak. Like Dennis Prager, he's got a great model. For, he's got a tremendous number of spokes and wheels, and, and I'm actually doing another one of the Prager universities for him. And I pitched you for uh, Choose Yourself as a Prager. I mean, those get millions and millions of views. I didn't, It doesn't translate into like book sales or – or or invitations, but it's like very satisfying intellectually to get, you know, even a dollar for a mental idea that cost you zero dollars, you know, just some calories that you had for breakfast and it becomes an idea. And then my kids you know, they think of me now, they're like, wow, you've got more subscribers, you know, and you've got more books sold. And like my, my middle son wants to write a book called losing the Nobel prize part two. It's just like Uh, son of
0: losing the (laughs) Nobel prize
1: (laughs) return of the losing of the Nobel prize. Um, so yeah, so some of the chapters I'll just, I'll just finish. Um, you know, some of the chapters. so there's five major sections, family and friends, you know, interpersonal issues, children, splitting the baby marriage, um, there's a con- very important concept in Judaism called lashon hara, which means evil tongue, which just means gossip, and uh, you're not even allowed to say something true about somebody. You know, if it's not, uh, if there's a, a possibility it could redound to their to their detriment. In other words, I can't say it. James is just like the greatest speaker in human history. He is amazing. And he's got his great TED talk and he's just foundational. He's changed my life. And then so he's not that great. He's kind of an asshole. Like, he, like you won't know about it. You'll never know that I said this. It's like third party praise. I heard this on your show too. It's like, that's the most um, uh, uh, powerful type of praise. If I say, James, you should know something. Jay is the freaking best frickin engineer. That's so much better than me saying Jay, you did it's great. going to his head right now. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> oh, he's listening? I didn't even know that. Uh, yeah. So there's so there's all these laws about how you conduct your speech and what the punishment should be. There's a famous parable, like this guy says something negative about his rabbi, then he goes to apologize to the rabbi. But it's actually true. It's like the rabbi had a had a marriage before he was married to his current wife. So that's a true fact. But he, there's nothing beneficial. It just feels good to share a juicy piece of gossip, especially when it's when it's true. Yeah. And then he goes to the rabbi, how can I make it up to you? The rabbi says, it's very simple. You can make it up to me in the following way. Go to your house, get your pillow, and bring it here. And the guy's like, I'll do anything. I feel so guilty. It's Yom Kippur. Please tell me, uh, I'll bring my pillow. The rabbi says, okay, bring the pillow. He brings the pillow. The guy says, what do I do now? The rabbi says, take a knife and cut the pillow open and shake the pillow. And the guy's like, oh, it's my favorite pillow, but but fine, if this will make it right, I'll do it. Cuts the pillow open, shakes it. The wind comes by. And the rabbi says, "Now go pick up every feather, and that will be that will be your recompense to me." Uh, and meaning that, like, you don't ever know the outcome of the detrimental effects that it could have, the ripple effects of what you do, and therefore avoid it at first by not doing it in the first place, even if it's true.
0: So that's interesting because I never thought of it that way. Yeah. But I guess that's true. But uh, two two points in on that one yeah. is like well, right now when I just was telling you. Uh, uh, Ryan Holiday quote about book sales. Yeah. That's implicit praise for him because yeah. I'm I'm quoting him, yeah. and I don't want to say it without saying this is what Ryan Holiday told me because I don't want to right. unfairly take credit for what he said. So I had to pl- praise him and uh, in order to convey this information to you. Right.
1: Yeah, and it's also like people say, oh, I'm going to steal this joke of yours, James. Or, I mean, you know as a comic, that's a big no-no, but but even like you steal someone's idea, that's considered theft. That's actually considered a damageable offense in the Talmud. So like just the reason I, I think it'll be interesting is because people spend their whole life thinking about either you know, what their image is on social media or how much money they have or, you know, are they going to get the next $600 stimulus check? But, you know, how often do they really... I think about it all the time because it's, it's weekly in Judaism. It's a ritual every Saturday. We have hours of discussion about the, the, the portion in the Torah. And, and it just takes you to this philosophical realm that most people don't have time for after freshman year of college.
0: And, and I think secularizing that by saying, Hey, yes, if you like this, here's my newsletter where you're going to get this in this secular way. Yes. Uh, You don't have, nothing's going to mention God, by the way, you have to have a section about business and finance. There's Uh, a
1: business section. So there's interest.
0: Oh, but the other thing I was going to mention though, about the saying something good, and then Mm -hmm. you have to pick up all the feathers. I obviously have seen an example of that these past few yeah, weeks right. where I wrote something I considered good, but you but once it's at when you write something, once it's out of your hands, you you have no control over the outcomes. Yeah. And some of the outcomes were so shitty. Right it was now. like <laughs> unbelievable. No, I
1: know, like death threats and so forth.
0: Um, A- everything, like everything under the sun. and, So, so I can see why, but, but then at some point though, there's gotta be, you have to be able to say things that are good. You have to be able to praise Mm -hmm. people who are good and and say, Hey, you should call this plumber instead of this plumber.
1: Yeah. But there is even like, there's a website that's, um, so, you know, like the Shabbos to an Orthodox Jew is very like, you don't drive, you can't use a phone, you can't go to a restaurant. So there are actually an Orthodox person thought he was doing something really good. He set up a website where people, it was like Airbnb but it was for Orthodox Shomer Shabbos people around the world. So I'm in, I'm in Pensacola, Florida, you know, in January, actually, I am supposed to be there. Uh, but uh, you know, where can I go if I have to stay over Saturday night that, you know, the food is good, you know, and the, and the hospitality is nice. So he set up this thing thinking it was a mitzvah, but it turned out to be like a really big sin in a very, you know, because he was basically encumbering people. He was telling, you know, Lush and Hora. he was like basically praising them too much that could only invite negative. Like you said, that the food was good. Like that brisket sucked ass. Like I'm, you know, like and there was people were commenting on it. Like oh, I'll never go to that person again. They got yeah. So it's like even the best intentions can cause can 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 negatively 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 come back to to haunt the unintended. But, but if you them. take
0: that to an extreme, though, then you can't ever do anything good.
1: <laughs> no, that's 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 true. Of course, it has to be in moderation. But you have to look at the amplification effect, the leverage effect, the network effect, and in some sense, you know, I think. Yeah, of of course you should. You should, but but it's really like some people on Yom Kippur they don't talk at all. Like they actually are in silence for fear that they might say something like this that is, you know, potentially coming back to, to haunt them or you know to hurt them or, or whatever. So I think well it might be fun to to talk about that on Yom Kippur and uh, not on Yom Kippur, but uh, come back and discuss it. But yeah, the business stuff is like. Um, you know, actually, the hardest thing in in the Torah is to is to maintain um, honest business practices because it's the kind of thing like uh, there's a there's a concept because of, it's all
0: for Jews. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding.
1: <laughs> there's a concept like don't put a stumbling block in front of the blind, right? Um, and so uh, that that's uh, that's a famous law in the Torah. But what it means and how you apply that stuff like who puts a block in front of a blind person? But of course, it's a metaphor, right? It's like don't do something when no one will find out, and uh, but you. In other words, like a blind person doesn't know that there's a stumbling block in front of them. You know, they won't know until it's too late, but you knew when you did it or, you know, don't, um, uh, don't, uh, uh, be mean to the, to the, you know, don't hate the, um, your, uh, your uh, a rich person in judgment. Like nowadays we have the social justice. That's completely anathema to Judaism. You're not supposed to favor. In fact, you're supposed to say, it says, don't favor the orphan or the widow in judgment. Oh, she's so uh, poor. I feel so bad for her. You know, George Floyd's, you know, wife or whatever. Like, I feel so bad. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not. I'm not talking about the actual case, but you know, whatever. I feel so bad for her. I don't even know if he's married. But, but now I'm gonna give her the settlement, even though I don't know if I believe that that they, that he was actually in the, you know, whatever. Um, so it's all things that you wouldn't know that the other counterparty wouldn't know. But the concept is that God knows everything. Like he knows you put the stumbling block in front of the poor person, or he knows that you like, you hate your enemy so much. You're not going to help him when his donkey breaks down, you know, and that'll be another law, you know, like when you see your neighbor donkey straining, like it's not your neighbor straining, it's his donkey straining, but you're supposed to help the donkey. And even in that way, in that sense, you're actually adhering to laws of society. That, that case is societal law. In business, there's like um, uh, things like if you can, uh, let's say you're in the Holocaust um, and you, uh, but you can get your kid uh, saved. You can you can bribe the SS officer. Is it legal to do that? Like, do you think that's that you should that something the Torah would look upon favorably?
0: Uh, so here's how I would answer that. Yeah. I would say absolutely yes, but then also my son would have to just decide if it was legal for him to ex- accept getting out that way.
1: There are certain there are certain things like that, uh, but there, uh, the majority rule is that you shouldn't. But but that doesn't mean it's right. So for example, if you see if you get a news report, you know Boca Raton Drive or wherever you are, um, you know is on fire and there's a house. Uh, on fire and it's got a big swimming pool or whatever, there's five bedrooms or whatever. Uh it's on fire. Are you allowed to like pray that it's not your house? Uh keep in mind that they thought prayer actually worked. Well know.
0: that that I would say no.
1: Because what does it mean?
0: Uh, well I would say because just I wouldn't because you're 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 implicitly implicitly praying that it's someone exactly. else's house who might die. Exactly. Right. That's
1: hundred percent right. But in the SS thing too, right? Because you're but the guy's going to kill somebody. He's got to kill somebody. So by you saving your son, you're actually committing someone else to someone who doesn't have the money to. Product. But
0: I'm not. I'm not hoping. I'm not relying on chance right. in that case. I'm taking action right. to save my son. Whereas I wouldn't take action to. I wouldn't randomly pick. Right. Right. Because uh-huh. uh, uh, I'm. You know. I. I. It, let's say responsibility goes in concentric circles. So mm-hmm. there's family, then community, right. then you know, religious belief, you know, belief. and mm-hmm. um, But there was, there was something in there. Um, I'm going to forget now. Uh, oh, you know, have you ever read uh, the, the, there's a book, The Diamond Cutter, and it's about, it's an interpretation, like a Western interpretation of the Diamond Sutra in Buddhism. Mm. And a lot, some of these principles that you've spoken about also are in there. Oh, interesting. So the idea that you shouldn't, he uses, it's interesting because this, this, um, not a lama, but like a, something the right level right below a lama. He's in the diamond industry in New York, but he's also a Buddhist, and he he writes this book of, and applies the Diamond Sutra to business. And he says something similar, which is that never gossip about anybody if um, if you want to succeed in the workplace. Interesting. So so like or if you're having problems with workers, then immediately stop gossiping. So it's these dis- things that seem disconnected, but he connects the dots using the diamond suture the way you were using the Thomas Interesting, so it's just-
1: that's nice because that'll help it be more secular, more applicable to more yeah. people than, right. So uh, yeah, the title, I'm still not really sure about how I want to do it. Um, but, but the basic thing is like the end will be that there's no new thing under the sun, which is of course from the book of Ecclesiastes, written by- allegedly by King Solomon also, but, you know, like, how do you think about these things? Like, it's better, when I go flying, I'm a pilot, I have a, a, my own plane. You know, when I go flying, it's better to have a plan, even if it's a shit plan, than have no plan, like make it up in the air, you know, because it's, it's better to be wishing you were on the, you know, in the air than uh, when you're on the ground, than wishing you were on the ground when you're in the air. And like the checklist manifesto, I didn't really like that book so much. I thought it was very kind of uh, poorly organized. But thinking of a checklist for your ethical life, that's no one's ever done that before. Like an ethical checklist. Cause
0: in the heat of the moment,
1: you're going to be screwed. Like, like the, they're bribing this SS officer. Like
0: right, the the idea too, of having a plan so that you're not going to be caught off guard in a new situation. And, and, and even if you don't have a plan for this exact situation, you've exercised that muscle yes. enough that you can come up with a plan quickly. It's, it's like in, in chess, it's not as high stakes as flying, but right. there's a, there's a saying, uh, even a bad plan is better than no plan. Yeah. Exactly. So So
1: having some kind of structure, it doesn't mean you have to believe in God, you don't, it doesn't mean, yeah. So I I think, yeah, the checklist manifesto, but a moral, a moral version of it, just so that not, it's almost meta, Like, like you just said, it's better to have a plan. So like, here's your ethical plan, at least start thinking about it, exercise the muscle, as you say. Yeah, I think that's, that's a brilliant way to put it. So I I think it could be a good, and it's sort of like my friend and I are just like writing, we're just putting a ton of crap down, but maybe what I'll do I'll send you the outline maybe tomorrow just to look at it. Again, I'm going to have big people like Ben Shapiro who's coming on my podcast next week. Um, I probably have- Oh, that'll be fun. Yeah, I probably have like, uh, so you'd write the foreword. I might have Dennis Prager who's a super popular guy. I'd write the afterword because he writes this book called The, N- the Rational Bible, uh, which is another book
0: idea. So I have a book, James. Did you know- I have to tell you first yeah. my, my idea. Yeah, yeah. So I keep, I keep thinking of an idea called uh, The Book. Okay. It's just called that. And I basically take- 10 to 20 concepts that are universally in every religion, uh-huh. like do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Yeah. That's in every yeah. religion, golden the golden rule. rule. Yeah. A- and and basically I would find these 10 to 20 things and describe how they're in every religion and how in practice, you know, some interesting things about that quote, like p- particularly in that one, for instance, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Most people think of the first part, but never the second part. Right. So meaning- a, people always assume that means be nice to others right. because of course you're going to be nice to yourself. But the reality is most people aren't very nice to themselves. <laughs> yeah, so right. it's also, in, it's important to put just as much work into the, as you would have, as you would do unto yourself that's really as, as the do unto others. And actually nobody ever that. thinks that. Yeah.
1: yeah, It's actually true. In the Talmud, like it says things different levels. Like um, it says, yeah, like you said, you, uh, you shouldn't um, uh, love thy neighbor basically. And then it says, but like, uh, two brothers were fighting. And you're like, what the hell does that have to do with anything? But it's like, if you, and there's actually a a word for it or a phrase for it in Hebrew, it's kol v'chomer. Like, all the more so, A fortiori is where we translate it in modern Latin or whatever. But like, if you are obligated to your neighbor who's not related to you, all the more so you're obligated to your to your brother or your wife. So you're having a fight with your wife and you're not going to stop until you win the fight. Um, you're actually violating a commandment not to um, hate your neighbor. Even you're like, what the hell? My wife's not my neighbor. She's my wife and she lives under my roof. But no, all the, if your wife is also an other. And so you owe this to her. But then the ultimate is what you just said. You owe it to yourself to
0: give yourself
1: that love, that benefit. Exactly as you're saying, that's in the Talmud.
0: Right. And you know, I got, when I wrote Choose Yourself and I had that title, a lot of people, not a lot of people, but you know, enough that I noticed, uh, were critical. Mm. Oh, that sounds really selfish. Uh, but you know, you, it's, it's the whole metaphor of you put the mask on yourself before your baby. If Mm. you're in a plane and their oxygen mask fall down, you've got to take care of yourself in every possible way in order to best Help others. Mm-hmm. In order to contribute the most good to the world, you have to focus on yourself the most. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I feel like with the ethical will. If you write your ethical will, you're not going
1: to be as likely to commit suicide because you're going to be thinking about you're taking care of yourself, you're valuing yourself, you're tallying up yourself. Maybe you're forgiving yourself. And maybe you're seeing a perspective that, yeah, I felt like killing myself when I was 19 also, but I don't, you know, and now I'm 49, almost 49. You know, now I felt like killing myself. You know, whatever. Um, you know, maybe it'll give you that perspective that no, there's something you know independent of it.
0: Just on that real quickly, uh, it, 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 because now, now, because that was the one also you were thinking self publishing and real publishing. Yeah. this one could be a short. That could be a short book also, the book and you get one?
1: you mean you're your one with the book the ethical will. Oh, oh, oh yeah. Book.
0: Okay, yeah. How so? So you you don't have like uh, I, a short books are more easy. They're easier to self publish, mm-hmm. and you still get all the benefits you want to get, which is. Uh, email lists, more subscribers, you know, back catalog. Uh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So a, a kind of a semi quasi business or at least a, a, a trafficked website around the thing it. I
1: wonder about uh, with that is, um, is, is, uh, how do I get permission? That's why I want to talk to Tim and to, and to, um, what's his name? Uh, the, the, Tucker Max, you know, like how do we go through the permit? Like I want to get, well, first of all, some of the people like Freeman Dyson is dead. Uh, But I have this hour, two hour, three hour interview with him that's gold that he never, you know, I go deep with my guests. I don't just talk about why are you so brilliant and, you know, tell me about Dyson spheres. No, I go like, what is the meaning of your life when you look back on it? Can you teach someone to be creative or is it just, you know, platitude that everybody's got, you know, so I've got all that, um, it's on tape, but like, how do I, what's the legality or Jim Simons, like, do I really want to like publish something in a book? He's already said it on the podcast on YouTube, you know, fifty thousand people. Yeah, saw yeah. It. That's all that's all fair game. You can I can like transcribe it or do I need their yeah, permission? Yeah. Do I need them to sign something? Like did Tim no. I thought what Tim did is he he says, like, I didn't use the transcript because there's all the ums and ahs and and like dead end questions that go nowhere, which you know, obviously I do that a lot. But um well, wow, what
0: do you think? Yeah, I, I, I did this. So I wrote a book called Think Like a Billionaire. Mm-hmm. And I actually published it in a very different way. It was an experiment for me. I published it just, uh, just on Scribd, mm. which is um, mm. kind of like a Netflix for books. Okay. Uh, there's millions of books and there's millions of subscribers, and so it was just Scribd subscribers who could read this book. And now, you know, six months later or a year later, I'll publish it on Amazon. But it's just um, the trans—it's—it's it's the transcripts of every billionaire I've interviewed, mm-hmm. plus my comments and what I learned, and. Uh, I edited the transcripts, take out the ums and the ahs and clean it up. And then for the audiobook, I I read my parts out loud, but then just put the podcast episodes in for the audio book. Oh, interesting. Oh, that's wonderful. so I have so I have a, a paperback, a, a ebook, and audiobook oh, for it. Oh, that's awesome.
1: I gotta get that one. I, I've I, I've seen it, but I, yeah, I didn't. But it's not on Amazon, right? Oh, the audio book is on no. Audible, right?
0: No, no, it was just on Scribd. Oh, it's
1: only on Scribd. The whole thing. Okay. Yeah.
0: And yeah. Then- I mean, at some point, I'll I'll do it for all, but I just. I just haven't had. So I feel like the um
1: the Bible book that I mean the um the book book that you just mentioned like if I had that idea I wouldn't feel bad about taking that to Tucker and just like paying him to write the whole book like I know he's got that service to do the whole thing because it's not like it's it's a great idea but it's not like oh my kids when they find out that I didn't you know I have to keep that hidden from them or or whatever um you know but with Why? with I'm just saying like I don't know there's a stigma against like using ghostwriters or whatever I'm saying like I wouldn't feel bad about that book.
0: Why would you use a, a ghostwriter though? Just the
1: time. Like I just don't have time. Like, like but would you
0: cut? Would you outline all the ideas and yeah. pick the quotes and stuff yeah. like that? Okay.
1: Yeah, I would curate it uh, for sure. Like I think the um, the Ethical Will book and the Talmud book because I have a co-writer and he's going to do a good job. You know, so I don't need Tucker or whatever, and I'll do my chapters. He's got his ten, yeah, his nine chapters. I do mine. We got eighteen ideas. Boom. But um, but in terms of the Ethical Will book, I feel like that is so close to my. Like, I wouldn't feel good, even though I don't have the time for it. So I'm just worried, like, oh, I don't know. Is there is there a self-stigma, not about self-publishing versus traditional, but about, like, leveraging someone like a Tucker to do that? Like, the book that you just mentioned, the book, that would be perfect. You had the idea. You just hand it off because you want to get it done. You've got to, And that liberates your time, leverages you to do the other 10 books that you're working on, whereas it's not like you're going to feel like, oh, you'd rather have it be out there than have it be 100% James.
0: Yeah, well, think about it. Like Mm -hmm. you're, you're, so you're not. There's, there's various stages, right? So remove all stigmas for a second, and let's just analyze this structurally. Mm -hmm. So it's not like you said, "Oh, hey, write a mystery novel for me, uh, and then I'm going to put my name on it, and you give it to a ghostwriter who's great at mystery novels, and you put it out there, and your name's good enough to make sales because let's say you have a platform and blah." So that's one level where. It's like useless. Uh, actually, I actually have an that, idea for
1: that because I I'm not a good writer in terms of fiction, but I think a great murder mystery. You know that only three people can win the Nobel Prize, right? Uh, on any one prize, only one, uh, only the Peace Prize can more than one three people win it. Yeah, they just oh, arbitrarily changed it. Okay. So, and a lot of people know that, uh, but but I guess not you, but but that's that's fine. Uh, but uh, but you had a murder mystery where like three people discover you know like how to cure cancer. And they're four people discover how to cure cancer, and then like one of them murders the other one. But uh, we don't know. That's a great idea. Yeah. So like, but I don't want to write it. Like,
0: but I think it's like the Highlander, yeah. But with the Nobel Prize, yeah, like exactly. whoever's the last one standing. <laughs> that's
1: right. There to be only wins. one. There could be only three. Yeah. That could be the title. There could be only three. Um, but. I would farm that out in a second, you know, but yeah. But then, and then I just edit it, I guess. I mean, how much does that cost to do that? Cause I don't care about, like, that's not a prestige thing. That's just like, there's a funny idea.
0: No, what I would do it, what I would do there is I would outline it out as much as you can and then finish the outline with a ghostwriter who's written successful thrillers before. Mm-hmm. And, and then, yeah, then it's perfectly fine to be Brian Keating with so-and-so or just you use the ghostwriter. Mm-hmm. That's it. Okay, Like that's, so that's a business model, okay. right? Yep. That that's fine. And then the other thing is, um, but but this applies to what you just said too. Particularly with the with that you're also a, a producer. Yeah. So, like, let's say if um, this this idea I have the book, let's say uh, uh, let me put it a slightly different way. I come up with all the quotes, and then I outsource each chapter to a different person. I think would be a specialist in that quote. Then it's clear that I'm building a production and. And although I might not do a single word writing of a single word, um, uh, it's my production. Mm-hmm. It's still by me with help from this whole list of prestigious authors. So, no one step away from that is one author and you with all the ideas, and then you do the final edit. So the last word is is by you. And is that any different? Really, you're still a producer. Right. You're the producer of the book, so that entitles you to have your your name on on the front. Yeah, and it was
1: my idea, right? Hmm? Yeah, yeah, very interesting. And, yeah.
0: And so, and then the final thing would be is um, I mean, also look at it completely like what like take um almost any Hemingway book. Did Hemingway write the book or did Max Perkins right. write the book? Editor, right? So if you look at the first drafts that Hemingway did and then Max Perkins edits, yeah. it's almost a different book. Yeah. Like he rewrote paragraphs, chapters, whatever. Like he was like the best editor of all time. And but it really is still Hemingway's book as the writer and Max Perkins the editor. Just we 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 feel this need to put labels on, but it's a creative project that mostly Hemingway did. Max Perkins added a lot. Mm-hmm. Other people probably added to it, and it became the book it did.
1: Mm-hmm. So um, Jay, can you can you stop just what we've been talking about for the last hour or so and then save that? But this and- is
0: a good this is a good podcast. This is a Joe Rogan style podcast. <laughs> let's include this part uh, just this one thing in as the conclusion of the podcast we're doing so it's kind of like a teaser okay. a little bit uh, yeah yeah to, okay great yeah so 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 just to set the stage inflation is this theory which occurs in the big bang like after the that initial unknown mysterious explosion from supposedly a singularity for a billionth of a billionth of a billionth of a billionth of a, billionth of a second all of these things are happening Called inflation, which basically sets up almost like the "quote unquote" DNA of the universe to come. Yeah. And uh, but there's a lot of unknowns all around that. But you just said something really interesting, which is, uh, uh, you know, of course, inflation applies a multiverse. I don't understand that. Why does inflation uh, imply a, a multiverse?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. Imagine, um, you do you know about people making sourdough, and there was like the shortage of yeast because of the pandemic. Uh, you couldn't buy yeast for a long time. And so people turn to a more primitive form of making an agent that causes uh, rising of dough. And that's called sourdough where you basically take, um, you know, some mush, give it, you know, some food that bacteria like to eat and then they'll, they'll find it. You just put it out in the woods or you put it on your windowsill. And eventually in the air, there'll just be some yeast and the yeast, uh, because it was so hard to find yeast and for a long time, uh, the yeast will come to it and you'll get the sourdough or mash. I think it's called, uh, I don't know if this is ringing a bell or whatever, but what would be the probability? So that yeast, uh, let's say one yeast, uh, uh, um, what do you call them? One yeast animal, uh, whatever you call it, lands on a Petri dish. Let's just say it's your, you have a bowl and you put some sugar and some water. It's called a Petri dish. Um, and then what's the probability that only one of those forms? If you know in the future there's a whole big loaf of bread, like
0: how probable is it that there'd be just one yeast Organism. So, so I would say like trillion to one, but you could put yeah. that, but this is going to lead into in another episode, the digital simulation stuff, which, you know, one could argue strongly against, even though the odds when you put it that way are like also like a quintillion to one.
1: Right, right. So the problem is estimating the posterior probability when you don't have enough of a prior. So you don't have prior information. You know that, like, there are a lot of taxi cabs in New York City, or there were before it died forever, uh, that are yellow. But not all taxis are yellow, right? So there's, you have some prior information. You say, I know there was an accident involved a taxi. Um, if you say the ta- uh, if you say it was a yellow car, that's much higher likelihood that it was a taxi than any other type of car, right? right? But the converse of it being like a black car, there are still taxis that are black, but the overwhelming prior information informs the estimate that you ultimately come up with, your posterior estimate. So in the case of, of, of inflation, the only way to get a large enough value of the posterior proposition that we exist uh, coming from something... Uh, that is so improbable is to increase the prior probability, and the best way, the largest number you can think of for a prior probability, in other words, the fraction of of possible universes there could have been at the earliest times in history, is to make that infinite. You know, to have an infinite number of possible universes of which ours is just one, and it has the right properties for us to exist. And that's this anthropic principle that says that the only way to have a universe that has observers asking the question of whether or not there are universes uh, that can exist is if it has the conditions that it has. And and those are, you know, sometimes used to make um, what are so-called fine-tuned versions of, of of this argument. But the basic notion is inflation uh, doesn't tell you how it got started. It doesn't tell you its own origin. It needs something else to tell you what its origin is. Now, of course, you're going to ask me what's the origin of whatever the multiverse is, and and that's where people start to get these infinite kind of regressive uh, questions. But the question of the multiverse's existence, at least, it's well posed, even if it's not well motivated by any evidence that we have currently. In that, in our existence uh, suggests that uh, that there's something that could have happened in the early universe that's not inconsistent with inflation which means that you had to have something like the multiverse.
0: Right, or there could just be, you know, next to one Big Bang, another Big Bang, that would happen, and next to that, exactly. another Big Bang. So,
1: so in my book, I, I use that analogy. I say, actually, a Petri dish with one culture of bacteria uh, the, uh, could be, you know, just outside the horizon of how fast these things can can travel on their whatever flagella. I don't know, uh, but but anyway, it could be far enough away that they don't know about the existence of another culture for sure. But the fact that they exist proves that there's material in, in the uh, meta, you know, kind of space of all possible points in space and time. There are conditions that are propitious enough that they can exist. Therefore, it's not impossible that another culture could exist. And if the petri dish is big enough, there could be an infinite number of them, of cultures and cultures and but, cultures beyond. But their I think
0: horizon. I feel like though this is one of those things where you have to prove it to to say it. Really. Yeah, so there like,
1: are right. So there because are, the,
0: the simplest solution really is just that there's one universe because that's what we observe, and there was one big bang, and you even keep the rules of relativity if it was a a, a big bounce. So there was just contraction. Uh, expansion, contraction, expansion over and over again. So, but then you're getting to multiple uh, infinite universes again as well. But does that does that count? Right. So the question of whether or not there's any reason to believe in
1: in the multiverse is is a very good one. And of course, you'd like to have there be evidence, right? So if I say there are other planets outside the solar system, until 1992 or so, 1993 or four actually, we didn't know if there were other planets outside of our solar system. We could derive that there should be other planets because there are other stars. Other stars came from previous generation of stars that blew up. And the material that goes into a star right before it blows up is exactly the type of composition the Earth is made up of, right? So you could say that there's millions, literally billions, maybe a trillion other stars in our galaxy or in surrounding galaxies. And so, of course, there's a very high likelihood. But did you know it? I, I suspect that question didn't trouble you. You just assumed it. And
0: many physicists just assume that there is a multiverse. Right. So there's, but there's a difference between like deduction and induction. So, deduction, you, you might have one set of clues and, and you can deduce something. But induction is like, oh, there's a bunch of examples. So, I'm going to induce that this goes on forever. Right. Which it probably does in the case of, of. It's easy for me to induce that there's more planets all over right. the place, even it's, if we can't see like them. It's almost
1: like the other way around. You're you're absolutely right. So it's almost like saying, in the uh, to make the analogy for us, it would be like saying there must be other planets because we exist. But that's not exactly that's that's not the that's not the logic that we apply. We say there must be other planets because we exist. They're, not that we exist because there are other planets.
0: Right. So I would say though, let's say me not knowing anything, and I'm curious what you'll you'll think. If someone said to me, why is there a multiverse? I would think of three things. One's philosophical. The other two are things you've observed in the, in the lab. So the the philosophical one is that in general, every cosmological improvement over history has involved humans being less and less the center of things. So if you take that one more step further, this can't be the only universe. There's plenty of universes where there's no life at all. There's plenty of universes where there's just... Life is made out of, I don't know, steel or whatever or elements that never occurred here or whatever. So so that's the philosophical first principle that I'm going off of. But then, and then the two other things is, one is there's this phenomena that sometimes electrons and photons and neutrons just appear out of nowhere, right? In the universe. Mm-hmm. So they have to be appearing, you would think they have to be appearing from somewhere. So, and I would assume they're kind of visiting, They're they're they're, they're massless enough that they're visiting from some other... Universe and going in between whatever fabric exists between universes in the in the multiverse.
1: What's your third one? Because the first one I agree with you on. I actually talk about that in my book. I call those great debates. So it's starting with Copernicus and Galileo that we're not the center of our own solar system. Then that the, yeah. that the solar system's not the center of the galaxy. The galaxy is not the center of the observable universe. Now is our universe the center of the multiverse? That's the next step in this Copernican. Uh, uh, debates. Right. Uh, the okay. second thing about virtual particles popping in and out of the vacuum is something that we observe currently in the lab. We can actually observe the effects of these things. We can't actually, you know, summon a particle out of the vacuum from two antiparticles. But we, um, the calculations, the properties of particles that we detect when we smash things together are only self-consistent with their mathematical behavior if there exists a vacuum, a state of zero energy, ground state. Um, from which uh, things can pop into and out of existence as long as they maintain the symmetry that existed beforehand. In other words, you get equal amounts of positive charge as negative charge, and you get equal and you have an equal, you know, sort of opposite uh, mass-energy condition that's
0: observed as well. Right, but uh, how does that say? How does that not contribute to the multiverse idea? Because here's here's my ultimate point with that: is that. Uh, uh, You know, again, given trillions and quadrillions of years in the multiverse, there's going to be some point where enough particles just appear out of nowhere that it creates a singularity that then explodes. And that's how a big bang happens. Yeah. Well, so not all
1: singularities explode. Like a black hole is thought to be a singularity. By the way, again, we don't know what it means to be a singularity because we have no notion of the physical ramifications of infinity. And a black hole would be, a singularity would truly be a point of infinite density, infinite temperature, or, or, or so forth, potentially in the Big Bang context. Um, but but getting back to this question, again, because we can have what's called a vacuum state in our laboratory, we can actually experiment with these existence of the virtual particles without requiring a whole other universe. Now, you may be considering. What we call the vacuum, the something from nothing, creation ex nihilo, but it's really not considered creation ex nihilo. It's sort of like an accounting, you know, trick. You can borrow as much money as you want as long as you return it before the bank notices it's missing. Right? In some sense, you know, if you could go in an infinity uh, infinitesimal amount of time, take out a trillion dollars and put it back a trillionth of a second later, they can't possibly know that you took it. So the vacuum is kind of like that. You can borrow energy from the vacuum, create particles uh, from the vacuum, as long as they have equal and opposite momenta, which is the the amount of uh, directional energy they carry, and they have equal and opposite charges. So you can't create net charge, and you can't create net uh, momentum, but you can create net mass, right? So that's kind of weird. You created mass from something that had no mass, namely the vacuum. That was something that was completely absent, and then all of a sudden, mass pops into existence. And that is observed, and the consequences of that are observed, without requiring a multiverse for it to take place. There are interpretations called Everettian quantum mechanics, many worlds interpretation, that do have a a sense of of a multiverse, uh, where every possible choice, every possible decision takes place in some universe or another, including whether or not we call this particle virtual or real, that can take place, and it takes place over such a short amount of time we can't yet possibly measure it.
0: And we'll, we'll get to that theory in the fuller beginning of the universe series. So my third reason why there, uh, you could say in some observational way that there might be a multiverse is gravity. So gravity is this incredibly weak force, right? It's weaker than electromagnetism. It's weaker than the nuclear forces. So the idea is that it's spread out across the multiverse whereas those and you mentioned in our in an earlier episode how it has some properties similar to you know like it it, it you know as gravity travels over space it loses power to the inverse of whatever mm-hmm. uh but because gravity is so weak perhaps it's spread out across the multiverse as opposed to these other forces are just inside this Universe.
1: All right. Yeah. So that would be a parallel. So there's many different types of multiverses. Uh, So there could be a multiverse in space that's physically a universe, just like our universe.
0: Right. Just next to us.
1: Next to us. Maybe it's one light year uh, beyond our observable horizon, meaning next year we're going to bump into it in a sense. And people have made predictions. Lathan Boyle and other scientists um, around the world have made calculations of what would be the observational imprint of our universe bouncing into another universe and creating uh, an imprint, which would be the imprimatur of a multiverse. So that would be direct evidence for a multiverse. We haven't seen that yet, uh, but that's one way you could have a multiverse. Um, another way you could have a multiverse is if there are these things called brains, which are uh, are, are sort of extra dimensions that we don't perceive, the same way that uh, from a long distance away, a piece of spaghetti looks like a one-dimensional line. But as you get closer to it, you can see it's two-dimensional. And when you get even closer to it, it can perceive it's three-dimensional. So that means the dimensionality gets compactified or gets shrunken down or reduced as you perceive it depending on your distance away from it. Now there are some that say that gravity can propagate between these different dimensions. So if we did live in a five-dimensional universe, there could be another dimension that we, let's just say, let's say we lived in a four-dimensional universe. So you could go left, right, up, down, backwards, and forwards, and blorkus and blorkon. We don't have words for it, but but there's mm. actually a notion of it. Uh, it's called a tesseract. You can, just as a, as a cube makes a square shadow when you put a flashlight on it from above, a cube looks square. Uh, uh, And then a square, if you had a square and you shine light from the side on a checkerboard, that looks like a line. And then you take a line and shine a flashlight on it, that projects down to a point. So going the opposite direction, the shadow of a tesseract is what?
0: Our current uh, three a three d cube
1: a cube. yeah, it would exactly look like a cube. And so uh, so imagine there's another dimension that projects things into our dimension that we perceive as these three-dimensional solids. Uh, but but in their dimension, they can see everything just like we could see characters on a chessboard, um you know from being above it, but they don't have a concept of what above it means. So there could be another dimension. And it could be that the three forces, the two forces of a, of the nucleus, the strong and weak forces, and the force of electromagnetism, are confined to those two planes, uh, to the to the three dimensional spatial world that we know and love. But the force of gravity can go between the two uh, dimensional spaces. That can go between the uh, the fourth dimension of space and the third dimension of space, and uh, and that's called brain theory. Lisa Randall wrote a wonderful book about this called Warp Passages, uh, about this particular idea. And some even conjecture that it could be responsible for uh, what we perceive as dark matter, could be the effect of ordinary matter in this parallel universe of a higher dimensionality, and that we it could be a millimeter away in some sense, just like we could put a cube above a chessboard by one millimeter, and the people talking along the chessboard can only hear themselves in the chessboard. They can't hear anything because that's sound, that's a chemical you know, ultimately transmitted by molecules. Uh, but they could feel the force of gravity from a cube. And that's actually, you can actually show that, and the light can show two-dimensional systems are affected by gravity in the third dimension. So maybe, just maybe, we could do an experiment that would show there's a fourth dimension of space uh, that is responsible for the gravitational effects of uh, that galaxies are per, you know, perceived to have due to dark ma- what we call dark matter, but have been unable to detect. And the reason we can't detect it is because we can't go to the fourth dimension yet.
0: But it's like right above us. It could <laughs> be. A, it
1: could be a millimeter away in some abstract space. That's right.
0: Right. And same with dark energy, right? We don't know. It could what's be. What's pulling?
1: Yeah, it could be. And so we try to do uh, experiments because you know the day is short, you know, so to speak. the The stakes are high. We we want to do as much as we can. We try to do experiments with the tools that we that we have today. Uh, unfortunately, when you talk about gravity, since it is so weak the scales in which you have to carry out your experiments are galactic or bigger. It's very hard to do, like, a tabletop experiment of gravity. I mean, the original force, the, cool, the gravitational force, uh, when it was first uh, observed, was observed in the lab to have this inverse square dependence by Cavendish, famous uh, Cavendish experiment, which every you know uh, physics major does at one point in his or her career. Uh, so you can do it on a tabletop, but that's about it. That's like, besides a, a ball rolling down an inclined plane, which our friend Galileo, Um, uh, used as a way to slow down the force of gravity so that it was commensurate with the technological tools available to him to measure time. Remember, Galileo was doing experiments before there was a watch. They were using, like, their pulse. They were using pendula. There was no reliable clock in 1632. Can you imagine like doing something like we're trying to figure out the multiverse, but we don't have a way to measure like distance or something like it's inconceivable how great an accomplishment that was. And yet all people learn about Galileo from these boring, Oh, here's a ball rolling down a thing. What if I tell you, you know, like that was part of the reason he was put in jail and, you know, allegedly tortured. (laughs) I think it would make science teaching much, much more interesting.
0: Cause science gets a little more blurry.
1: Yeah, that's right. So,
0: but, uh, in term, the the fact that gravity, which is completely different from these other forces, but still has this interesting mathematical property that's exactly the same, kind of shows that maybe that there's basic components to all of these things that are just exactly the same. And this is kind of like a a, a tease of we're doing a, a, a several podcast episodes about the origins of the universe with with Brian Keating, super physicist, almost a Nobel laureate uh, losing the Nobel prizes book. And this episode has been a great episode of just riffing on a bunch of uh, different, different ideas. So uh, thanks once again, Brian, for this start off as just a pre podcast conversation. It became the whole podcast. So, (laughs) so thanks once again for coming on the podcast and see you on your birthday to, to start doing again, the origins of the universe podcast,
1: getting back to work. That's yes. right. Thank you, James. Have a great weekend.
0: All right. Thanks a lot, you guys. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day.